Welcome back to the new season of the VMP Anthology Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer. This season, unbelievably to me, is our 14th, and it is devoted entirely to telling the story of Ghetto Records, the short-lived Latin jazz soul and boogaloo label founded by Latinx music legend Joe Batan. This box collects literally everything the label ever released, six LPs, and it also features a brand new compilation featuring loose seven inches and some unreleased material. A rarity for us with these boxes is that this box is literally the complete story of a very small slice of the rich history of New York music, and it tells the story of the label from the start to its literal finish when it basically just disappeared. We partnered with our friends Now Again Records to make this box possible, and we are really excited for these albums to be available on streaming and back reissued for the first time ever. This one is the most expensive box to create on your own. Uh, It will cost you anywhere between three to four grand to buy these albums, the six that you can actually get uh, away from this box. They are very, very expensive on Discogs. They deserve to be heard by more people, which is why it was so exciting for us to, to work on this box. For the purposes of this podcast, we are very aware that the label and its music are not well known and are very hard to hear, except for, you know, now they're on Spotify. So we just thought instead of giving you the complete blow by blow, like we maybe do in other seasons of this show, we decided to focus this season around telling brief overviews of the albums and then playing a bunch of the music for you. So you can hear it in, in context with the story behind the artists and the albums. My co-host this season is, Pablo Iglesias, a DJ writer and Latin music historian who wrote the very extensive liner notes booklet for this box, which I should mention the box is still available. You can go and buy it. We have a handful of copies left. Hopefully, if you're hearing this and you haven't bought it yet, this is the push that you need to go and get that box. Go check it out on our website. In this first episode of season 14, we'll talk about the background of Ghetto Records and how Joe Batan used some spite against a very famous label to launch Ghetto in the first place. And at the end of this episode, we'll talk the very first album in this box, which is called Ghetto Records Presents Eddie LeBron. So without further ado, here's me and Pablo. So, Pablo, you wrote the liner notes for our box set, The Story of Ghetto Records. So you are the perfect person to have on to talk about these records. But uh, first, I want you to talk me through sort of Joe Baton's, you know, story before he starts Ghetto. Because he was a New York guy. He signed to Fania. And then things sort of go sideways. Uh, what happens to him that he ends up making this label? 
Well, Jill Batan had a career at Fania that lasted six or seven years, the first five or six before Ghetto. And then he was still signed to Fania when he started Ghetto. So he lasted another couple with Fania before leaving altogether, um, which was about the same time that Ghetto dissolved. But the story is that uh, he was a very successful artist from the get-go with Fania. Around 1966, his, his first uh, single was a hit, Gypsy Woman. He had a very young band with him. They were teenagers. Some of them had to get permission from their parents to uh, be able to play late night shows. And Joe himself had been uh, released from reform school a few years earlier where he had learned music. In a way, you could say, like so many uh, young people, especially people of color in the music industry, he was ripe for exploitation. He was pure talent, had a lot of, you know, will and and street smarts, but the music industry was there to make money off of him. Uh, The thing is that Joe, unlike maybe some other contemporaries, was pretty savvy and was not willing to be exploited. He saw some examples elsewhere, for instance, in um, baseball, professional baseball, where the players were not getting paid much and they organized and renegotiated their salaries and contracts. And he decided that he would take some of this salary negotiation and uh, unionizing and um, chasing down royalties into the offices of Fania because he realized there was a day he told me that uh, he had a flat tire going on his way to yet another gig. You know, he had tons of gigs, but he was making so little that he didn't have enough to buy a new tire to, to get his car fixed, to get to the gig. And he said, wait a minute, I'm Joe Batan. I see my name and lights everywhere. My songs are requested on the radio. I'm playing five gigs a night number one record on on latin charts but i've got soul you know people within the soul community that are loving my music too and yet where's my royalties this doesn't equate and so he really took his grievances to heart and and brought it up with jerry masucci who was running the label masucci was the co-founder with johnny pacheco of, of funny records and they had started a few years previously and Joe Patan was one of the first people to be signed to the label, aside from Johnny Pacheco and Larry Harlow and a few others. And he was the top earner because he was crossing over. He had songs that were Latin and soul. So twice the appeal and twice the market within New York, especially with his uh, slow jams, you might call them the soul songs that were often requested by people and would, since uh, the radio was kind of like the the youthful um, Facebook of the day, there would be so much interaction between the DJs and the radio and people calling in requesting Joe's songs. He was from the street and sang about themes in the street and people identified so much with him that he really felt like I I should be doing better than I am. Mm -hmm. So hence the tension, you know, between him and the label, because he felt like he wasn't getting his, his just due. Right. Does he end up sort of reaching an impasse with Fania? Like what, what is the impetus for him to be like, well, screw you guys. I'll go start my own label. I think there were several, several lows in in this kind of process around each album he had signed a contract for a certain number of albums that Mm. he was uh, obliged to do and so each time it would come around to that you know and he would say look 
I know I sold 10,000 albums, but I'm not seeing any residuals. I'm not seeing any big budgets for the next record. I want to be able to pay my um, band members more than, you know, a few dollars per night. But rather than being able to renegotiate a better contract the way often happens today, he instead would get a little bit of money here and there, maybe a new car. And basically, Masucci would just kind of, instead of renegotiating the contract, there would just be a buy-off. So with enough of those, maybe two, three times, after the album Poor Boy in 1969, he just basically was at this impasse. Neither he nor Masucci would budge on the money question. And so that was when he was thinking of ways to try to stick it to Masucci, as it were, as he said. Um, he was a street guy, a tough guy, a savvy guy, and a proud guy who felt like he'd been messed around. So he figured, well, what would be one of the best ways to really show those guys at Fania that I knew what I was doing in the music business? start my own record label. <laughs> I mean, to be mm -hmm. fair, you know, Fania was co-founded by a musician, a band leader, just, just like Joe Batan. So, so why not take a page out of Fania's own book and start your own label? The issue, he says, which has always been a problem with him, is he has big ideas, but he doesn't have the wherewithal, the financial clout mm. to follow them up. Because it wasn't only starting that record label where he had a great idea but didn't have the backing. There were other ideas later on that were similar uh, in that he needed to go somewhere else to somebody else with money. Well, where's Joe Batan from? He's from El Barrio. He's from the streets. He's from, from uh, East Harlem. So what, what kind of bank is going to lend him some money to start a business? None. A loan shark, maybe, yeah, a drug dealer, maybe, some kind of uh, street guy mm -hmm. that he knows might help him. What he tells us is that he approached someone he knew from the neighborhood, a guy named George Fibo, probably Puerto Rican extraction, I think, um, mm -hmm. according to some of the other musicians I've talked to, they all seem to think that, who had some money, a businessman, in quotes, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And certainly, George Febo knew who Joe Batan was. So he he said, what can I do for you? And Joe said, I've got an idea. I'd like to start a record label. Would you be interested? And according to Joe, George Febo said, hells yeah, I'm, I'm there. You know, you have great taste. You've worked with a lot of talent. You're from Fania and everybody loves you. Yeah, let's do it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how it got started. Um, the planning stages were around 1970. And then the label really got going in 1971. And so they launch Ghetto Records. They put out, I think, one or two albums in 1970, but for real, their big year is 71. And how long does the label last? It's not long, right? Well, that's about it. I mean, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> the concept for the label was 1970. Um, according to the literature that I found, the first release was actually, I think, November 1971, even though two of the recordings had been done before that. But when we looked at the master tape for the Paul Ortiz, which was, I believe, the second release, 
it had 1971 on the master tape, but that was the final mastered edition. So the actual recording sessions could have been done in 1970. It's hard to say. And the same thing with the very first release, which was Papo Felix meets Ray Rodriguez. Joe told me that a bunch of those recordings had been done earlier as instrumentals uh, with Ray Rodriguez's orchestra. And it wasn't until 71 or late 70 that um, they came to Ghetto, the newly formed Ghetto Records, and then finished the album and put Papa Felix's voice on a couple of the, uh, you know, recycled a couple of the tunes. So yeah, whether it's 1970 or 71, when it got off the ground, I think the final album and stray 45s at the end were in 72, probably not even that far into 72. So right. So yeah, it's 18 not very long at all. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the whole thing was that that, you know, they just didn't have a lot of money. And they were renting these offices um in the very same building that the original Fania offices had been in. <laughs> mm-hmm. on Broadway. Had to make um, sure he town. stuck it to him, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was like the best revenge he could think of. The only thing is that Fania got bigger and moved up the street, I think from 850 Broadway to 888 Broadway. <laughs> but yeah, here is this young upstart from the streets uh, that you already know <laughs> moving mm-hmm. into your building. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do about it? Right. And so that the, the label kind of collapses because uh, Joe Baton kind of moves on to other projects, right? Well, the way he puts it was he felt he was pushed out by FIBO. Hmm. If we look at it from FIBO's point of view, which we do not know what that is because he disappeared, I guess that was in 72, but basically he's putting all this money into it and he's got ambitions himself for being a producer and being a mogul. He pretty much learns the ropes from Joe Batan with the first couple releases. Joe took Fibo kind of under his wing and showed him, you know, producing, engineering, recording, even down to the marketing, um, because Batan already knew the ropes from Fania. And he had these relationships at Fania. And Joe said to me, you know, I I'm always giving away these things too early. I'm, I'm always like blabbering and showing people how to do stuff and giving them my ideas. And then they run with it. And I'm left holding the bag. My wife says, you know, I, I trust in people too much. And I, I show my hand before uh, I really get to do something myself. And then they take it away from me. And he has told me that that's what happened later too, with Sal Soul, the label right. Sal Soul. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's why he says he felt edged out after the second album. Because FIBA was going out there and signing uh, artists and putting his name as producer when, according to Batan, he didn't know anything really about music. I mean, he knew what he liked, mm-hmm. but he, he couldn't play an instrument or, or write a lyric to save his life, uh, even though he claimed credit. FIBA claimed uh, writing credit on a few of the songs when I interviewed uh, a couple of the musicians. They said, no way. Mm-hmm. Um, they, and they kind of... Eventually, they the various musicians that are still around that told that were willing to speak on the record said they didn't really care for Fibo too much. I mean, he was kind of a slippery guy. Mm-hmm. So um, Joe just washed his hands of that, thinking, hmm, you know, here's another thing I tried to get going, and somebody uh, messed it up, took it away from me. Mm-hmm. So and he goes on to do Sal Soul records well, pretty much immediately in like 72 73 right right but it's it's a little more nuanced than that in that 
there still was a few more um, ghetto records to be to be made. And at one point, Batan says that George Febo tried to get Batan to hold on to some money for him. And Batan said, I'm not having anything to do with that. And then at another point, <laughs> one day Febo showed up and said, here, take the contracts, take the records, uh, take control. So he went from first being a partner, half and half, when they founded it. Then Batan walking away saying to Febo, no, 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 you you take it all. I, I'm busy. And to be, to be honest, he had renegotiated um, or at least gotten some payoffs with Fania and had two more albums that he did during this time. <laughs> so there's that brief moment in the middle of uh, Ghetto Records uh, trajectory where Batan walks away from Ghetto Records and goes back to Fania to try a couple of different albums, uh, singing some soul. It was very soul oriented. Um, and then the St. Latin days massacre, um, which, which had like some funk in it, but also had salsa and would the sound of that record really presaged the sound that he had later with salsa, but he hadn't done salsa yet. So in this back and forth where Batan walks away from everything that he had helped or that he had conceived of and created with Fibo. Then Fibo tries to give it all back to him. And that made Patan really suspicious. He thought maybe Fibo was in trouble with the law. The feds were breathing down his neck or something. And so he either, maybe he wanted to stick it all on Batan. If there was anything ill-gotten, he, Batan did not know what the particulars were and didn't want to know, but it seemed pretty fishy and strange that, you know, one minute Fibo's taking over the whole thing and, and producing like four or five records in quick succession. And then all of a sudden wants to hand it all back to Batan while, while Batan is busy trying to kind of repair things with Fania, if only briefly. So he smelled the rat and he basically mm. pulled out, uh, even though legally speaking, Fibo had signed it back all over to him. Huh. So and that's at the dramatic juncture. When all of a sudden Batan is told by a neighbor and friend, hey, your apartment building is surrounded by cops. The feds are out there. There's a stakeout. <laughs> I don't know if they're going for you or what, but take care and get away from the window. You know, it was nighttime. So mm -hmm. Batan hunkered down with his, his dog. Um, I think his wife was away out in Queens or something. And so he basically didn't make a sound. And then he could tell that the the feds were approaching and his dog went ballistic, was barking like crazy. <laughs> and and they retreated momentarily. And then they were completely still for hours. He just lay on the floor, he told me, lights off, away from the windows, hoping it would all go away. And then checked to see if the coast was clear a few hours later in the middle of the night, snuck out the window and lay low for a bunch of months. And basically... Up until now, didn't want to have anything to do with, with Ghetto and with those bad memories. And he does not know to this day what happened to George Fibo. Mm -hmm. And I, I tried to do due diligence and, and uh, sleuth him out and, and short of like, you know, trying to talk to somebody within the law, within criminal justice <laughs> to right. figure out if there's any lead there. Um, I haven't found anything, no mentions. So either maybe he was in witness protection, bumped off, 
just decided to disappear on the lamb. Who knows? Uh-huh. Maybe he's out there somewhere. Maybe right. he's not. Maybe he's dead. Yeah. But so if you if you're in disappear. law enforcement and listening to this and can look him up for us, <laughs> let us know. And yeah. or if you're George Febo currently listening to this, reach out. <laughs> We'd love to hear from yeah. you. Right? Yeah. Maybe we would. Maybe we wouldn't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> So I think you mentioned this in the liner notes that like, so the master tapes for Ghetto kind of get forgotten and are maybe lost in a fire. Is that correct? It's not so much a fire as a a sort of fire sale, you could call it. But basically what happened in many cities all over the world, but certainly in New York, where there are a lot of independent recording studios during the sort of industry boom of the later 60s and early 70s, eventually a lot of those studios either went bankrupt, were subsumed you know, by larger entities, or somebody switched an engineer left and went to another studio or, or what have you. In this case, with Broadway, Pat Jack, um, the lead engineer and part owner, I think went bankrupt. And the deal with Ghetto, as with a lot of independent productions, was basically if you didn't pay X number of dollars outright to own the tapes, these recording studios would hold the tapes in escrow, sort of, or almost in hock. Um, until you fully paid off whatever their charges were. Because sometimes in the case with Joe Batan, because he had been doing so many recordings with, with Fania with various engineers and, and studios, including Broadway, he had good rapport and good credit with these people. So when Pat Jack really got going with Broadway, Fania had already been doing a few recordings there. And so Batan just would come in at different hours and record songs, or in the case of Ghetto, you know, bring a band. What we believe to be the case is that those master tapes were sold at auction, thrown away, lost. A lot of these tapes get just thrown in the trash. Later, when we talk about the final seventh LP in the Ghetto Records story, the songs that are by Joe Batan on that bonus LP, that is a similar kind of thing where the tapes were thrown out and then those ones were actually found by somebody. Hmm. But in the case, the one master tape uh, for a proper Ghetto LP that we did have was uh, for the Paul Ortiz y Los Quezon album that Joe had kept with him ever since that time when George Febo signed everything over to him Hmm. Um, because he knew that that record someday could be, maybe he wasn't thinking so much about these days of reissues and everybody getting into old music, but he definitely recognized because of the, the one soul song on there that, that became a hit he recognized that there was some value to these master tapes. Um, but that was really the only one that he that he held on to as far as he knows. Hmm. So it's not that the others were lost in a fire. It's that the others were just lost. 
Right. Yeah. So they, I mean, they could see conceivably could be in somebody's basement somewhere for all possible. Know. Yes. Yeah. Or yeah. taped over. Right. I, I, I mean, I heard from Ray Barreto that Fania used to tape over songs that they didn't put out because uh, the, the t- master tapes were expensive. Right. And so sometimes they would record a bunch of extra songs that didn't happen to fit you know, on a 35, 37 minute LP in those days, in the late 60s, early 70s. And they would just, instead of saving them, they tape over them. Yeah, they did that at Stacks too. Yeah, instead of throwing it out and wasting it, you just keep going over it. So, And the issue with so many of these, um, these six LPs on Ghetto is that most of the lead musicians are no longer with us um, or, or don't recall or don't know what happened to the tapes. Right. Because and you, you make this clear in their liner notes, like a lot of these bands were, you know, they were made up of teenagers in some cases. So they're probably not thinking like, I got to make sure this master tape is, you know, yeah. well stored and and I take it with me. And yeah, if people in their teens and 20s, I mean, some of them were well educated. For instance, the uh, Eddie LeBron band, they all knew each other because they were in college together. But um, but yeah, they didn't think about posterity's sake. I mean, they were just uh, trying to to stay alive in a cutthroat world. There was so many bands proliferating. It's kind of parallel to the garage rock scene in that there was only uh, so many venues that they could play at and so many airwaves that they could they could hear their songs on. And so there was a lot of competition. So they were just trying to keep their heads above water and get enough money together to jump on the bus and make it to the band practice or whatever. So they didn't necessarily uh, think about preserving anything. That's why we're using pretty much virgin vinyl, unplayed vinyl for some of our transfers. And then, and then the reel to reel for, for the, uh, we we're lucky enough to have the Paul Ortiz reel to reel. Um, right. After all these years. Yeah. And I mean, so, uh, you know, just like, I guess, a, a, a knowledge question for me is like, do you know how many copies they made of these records when they came out originally? There's pretty much no paperwork left, huh? you know, because he just walked away from it. Right. You have to recall that, like, he really felt there was something fishy. Um, or if there was something fishy, he didn't want to be associated with it. Mm-hmm. Nothing has ever come out since then to lead anybody to believe anything was questionable. But point being, it just was fly, a fly by night. I mean, the name says it all, Ghetto Records. You know, he wasn't preserving anything. The one document that we that we have actually has to and that has the Ghetto Records watermark on the letterhead. That was uh, a receipt. To Fania for for um, arranging for Joe Batan, you know, arranging and recording the songs that we put on the bonus record, hmm. Drug Story and Latin Soul Square Dance. <laughs> so imagine that he's doing songs under his own name, maybe on speculation for Fania or who knows what, maybe for a new album. But the transaction is all written out on Ghetto Records uh, letterhead. <laughs> <laughs> see what i mean that's another part of his sticking it to him. Right. that's literally the only piece of paperwork that we have so in terms of how many i don't think more than 500 wow most, yeah most mo- i mean and there are some mono and stereo versions of a few of these but then there's others that are only one edition right um, 
I believe that there might have been two pressings for the Paul Ortiz et l'Orchestre Son because okay. Tender Tender Love, the soul song off of it, was so popular. Mm-hmm. And um, the, I believe there's two different covers, one that has a, um, a little uh, thing added to it, a little tout or uh, hype um, mm you know blast that says um this album contains the hit tender love mm-hmm. but i'm not so sure there might be another earlier version that didn't have that on there i could be wrong but basically other than maybe one or two that have mono edition and a stereo edition there's really only these these single pressings there were a few that came out in colombia mm-hmm. believe it or not uh on the discos fuentes label Maybe three albums in total were licensed for the Colombian market that had their own editions. Uh, La Fantastica, Eddie Lebron, and and some of the Papo Felix meets Ray Rodriguez. So counting those, you might have like another 500. <laughs> so wow. yeah, wow. Not, not too many records, I don't think. Crazy. Um, if there were six records and 500 a piece, that's not too many. Let's talk about those records now. So Eddie LeBron is, at least in our box, presented as the first Ghetto Records yes. release. Who was he and you know why was he the perfect artist sort of for them to, to hitch their wagon to with Ghetto Records? The way I think about that is he, he was really apt for a debut because this was his debut album as well. And the band even though it's their debut recording, they had been together for a while, uh, six or seven years, ever since they'd been in college together. And they had a sort of apartment clubhouse where they would hang out, work on songs. And so they had already worked up a mix of salsa and soul, a mix of traditional Latin dance music with Cuban roots um, and some soul songs, you know, doo-wop, R&B type songs which was perfect for the aesthetic of what Joe Batan was looking for and came from, because that was kind of why he was so popular with Fania is that he was multicultural and multi um, talented. And people say, I mean, Eddie LeBron is still with us. um, But I was, I was speaking to his son mostly. And one of the lead singers in the band uh, Conchi Soto and both Jonathan LeBron and Conchi Soto said that Eddie is a multi-talented musician. In other words, yeah, he was known for the piano, but he could play all kinds of instruments and and write parts for them and arrange them. And he could sing too. Um, And funnily enough, when they came to recording the record, there's two songs on there where Eddie LeBron is actually the vocalist, even though they had these other two singers. The other reason why I feel like the, the album as a debut for both the band and the label is, is appropriate is the, the album cover because apparently according to Conchi Soto, 
in this uh, apartment that was like doubled as as their gathering place and clubhouse, they had a big piece of paper on the wall where everybody would write their tag. It was like filled with the graffiti of all their friends. And if you look at the album cover, which was designed by Izzy Sanabria, it also is covered with graffiti. And the 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 inside joke that apparently was Izzy Sanabria's concept because the band did not like it was that the ghetto offices are burnt out. You know, they're standing on this rubble, basically. It's a photograph of the band, and it's as cheap as can be. It's in black and white. Now, according to both Izzy and Batan, when they were first starting out, George Febo did not want to spend a lot of money or did not have a lot of money to spend, so he could only afford a black and white cover. <laughs> so, But Izzy had already done some black and white cartoon covers before. Um, he was actually kind of famous for these um, cartoon covers that he did for the Allegri All-Stars that showed the musicians, you know, in this line drawing style. So when he did this line drawing of all this graffiti around the black and white photo of the musicians, um, which is the reason why I bought the album first was because I thought the design was so amazing. I didn't really know about Ghetto Records. Um, I feel like it's really appropriate because it, it just feels so ghetto. It just feels so, you know, you get your graffiti and all the graffiti has these in jokes. And that's something I didn't get into in the liner notes because we didn't have space was almost every single little bit of graffiti is some insider joke about the Latin music industry. Um, huh. And it even points up to the rivalry between Masucci and Batan. <laughs> so obviously Izzy must have known about that rivalry. I mean, yeah. it was not it was not a hidden thing. It was pretty much out in the open. Uh-huh. So the thing is that according to Kachi Soto, the singer, when they saw that cover, the band was like, oh, that makes us look like a bunch of hobos. You know, it looks <laughs> like uh, we're drug addicks. And, and like we were doing, we're, we signed with some crummy like street ghetto record label, you know, but that to me was perfect. I mean, that right. in retrospect is very cool. Mm-hmm. Totally. And the band also thought that the recordings were kind of rushed because again, with the, with the, with the money, um, FIBO was trying to, to hurry them along. And because Eddie LeBron is a very creative person and was always thinking of new ways to present the music, even though they had worked on all these songs for a number of years and were already playing to big audiences, he, Eddie LeBron decided to rearrange some of the songs at the last minute, you know, changing mm-hmm. the sax parts and all this uh, sectional moving things around. Plus the fact that uh, one of the singers was, was late to the uh, gig. And so then Eddie LeBron had to take over the vocals when the other guys had been singing it for years, you know? So the band mm-hmm. really was, was not happy with the record. And I don't think any of them kept a copy of it either. Hmm. And basically after that record came out, the backing band, which they called themselves Orchestra Suave, which means soft and cool, mm-hmm. and smooth, like smooth suave, they left Eddie LeBron. Okay. And Eddie LeBron was cool with that because he basically didn't like being a super musician. He was not like a, a money guy. He was not an organizational guy. He did not like the booking aspect or or running the band. And he was so busy playing with many, many other people because he was so talented with arranging and piano playing. The band was like, you know, we, we can't even get enough gigs because you're away all the time. So they just left him. So even though he recorded another 45 for Ghetto, 
I don't know who that backing band was, but it was not Suave. Those guys went off and started gigging on their own with a new piano player. Some of those guys went off to just have regular jobs, and some of them moved on to be in famous orchestras. But literally, the band did not, as it was recorded, the band did not exist for very long after that <laughs> record. <laughs> so we're going to be able to play some music uh, on this show. So what is the key song you'd want somebody to hear if they they don't have the box yet, which they should go buy if they do not. But if they're listening to this and they don't have it and just want one song from this record, what's the song? I can never choose one song. <laughs> and that's true of all these records. I always like to say two, uh, mainly because each record has such a diverse sound to it. You right. Know, and if a, they're doing the soul and the salsa, like exactly. Joe wanted, there's two modes on most of yeah, these records, right? At the yeah. very least. Um, in this case, for this first record, however, I'm not so into the soul song because it's a cover of of an old like the song that was famous for Nat King Cole and you know I love you for sentimental reasons it it really doesn't grab me I like the heart salsa songs on this they're really great but I can't decide between uh Fui Sincero and Pena Pena became a huge hit in Colombia and was said to be a precursor to the romantic salsa of the 80s because it deals with relationships and pain pena means pain Fui Sincero, I Was Sincere, is also about a relationship with a woman, too. So, and it just has a great hook, you know? So I, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to say which one. I would say both. Not that you have to play them now. <laughs> but, uh, well, you're about to hear one of them then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
teclado de Queens. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast is hosted by me, Andrew Winnestorfer, and by Pablo E. Iglesias. It's executive produced by me, Andrew Winnestorfer, and it's produced by Jim Hankey of the Vinyl Emergency Podcast. Thanks to Now Again Records for partnering with us on this anthology. And remember, listen to more Sal Soul.